Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? So this is Emily. And this is Sarah. And we are the hosts of the podcast, Where Does It Go? Uh, It's a podcast we came up with to explore where things that just seem to disappear out of our lives and become someone else's problem, where do those things end up going? And Sarah, the first thing I'm going to talk about today is the first thing that we actually talked about over dinner when we kind of came up with this podcast idea, and that is roadkill. Oh, where does roadkill go? I don't know. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, awesome. I want to know. So I, uh, I have wondered since I was a kid, why do you mostly see roadkill on the side of the road instead of in the middle, except for the occasional like pulped deer in the middle of a lane? And <laughs> so this this was informative uh, as to where. Who actually puts the roadkill on the sides of the road and why it's on the side of the road and not gone. Uh, And one thing I hadn't thought about but makes perfect sense about roadkill is that it didn't really become a major problem until cars were invented and became, you know, the most common means of moving around. Are you sure? Because I feel like if I had my horse and my wagon that I could easily probably hit like squirrels and stuff with my horse. I, oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Well, and small children too. Uh, (laughs) Horse and, you know, horses and carriages are dangerous. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think it's the sheer volume of increase once people started driving. And then also that highway systems were developed. Mm -hmm. So people were moving further and faster. Uh, There's actually a book that I didn't read much of, but I read a little bit of uh, from 1938 by James Raymond Simmons Mm. uh, called Feathers and Fur on the Turnpike, which I thought was wonderfully dramatic uh, name. And it's looking at the issue of roadkill and how it's suddenly become in 1938 this phenomenon in the United States. So wait, there's a whole book about roadkill. Oh yeah, there's uh, there's several, but this was yeah this was one of the first ones. <laughs> huh. That's uh, cool. Yeah, it's uh I'll send you a link to it. I'll put a link up in the show notes for this episode. Uh, awesome. Because it's it's obviously public domain. Uh, and I guess it what's interesting about roadkill is it replaced, in a lot of ways, the issue of horse manure on the roads. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a more noxious problem because infectious disease can easily be spread by dead bodies and it's a little harder with horse manure. But horse manure volumetrically was pretty tremendous uh, when horses were the main means of transportation. So <laughs> it's it's an interesting trade-off. So let's get to modern day. Uh, let's move out of 1938. So whose problem is roadkill? And it depends on the road the kill is on and the size of the animal. On interstates and highways, it's usually the Department of Transportation. And that's there are state departments of transportation. And then there's technically a federal department, but it would usually be state departments of transportation. Mm-hmm. On county roads, it's the county responsibility. 
sometimes animal control services, uh, depending on the accessibility and extent of use of the road, it, it may be that no one's going to do anything about it at all. Uh, and then for cities, some cities use, utilize animal shelter staff. And then there's also uh, just sort of who's actually doing it. So we've got animal control services, some animal shelter staff, particularly in city limits, uh, roadkill collectors as an actual job, not someone that just does it for fun. Although there are those people too. But <laughs> as, as a contractor with whatever jurisdictional body, so the Department of Transportation, the county, the city, they can be paid per carcass or per hour. And they may work as on-call staff or may just drive around looking for roadkill as part of their job. Where do I sign up? <laughs> I uh, I think it's a job you can either be a private contractor and bid with a jurisdictional entity. Mm -hmm. Or you can look for, uh, probably it'd probably be a branch of animal control services if they're yeah. hiring someone to do it either full-time or for most of their time in a job. Okay. Uh, if the animal is small, like a squirrel or whatever, or on a less traveled road, they may just be pulled to the side of the road and left to decompose. So that explains all the deer and raccoons and whatever that you see on the side of the road. It's just somebody whose job it is to drive around and look for roadkill, uh, just yanking them to the side of the road, which makes a lot of sense because the decomposition process is usually pretty quick unless it's really cold. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also uh, easy to just feed vulture populations who do it for you for free. You don't have to pay a vulture. <laughs> There's actually been a huge uptick in vulture populations in the U.S., particularly in the east, eastern U.S. Oh, okay. uh, and there's been a big expansion from south northward uh, of black vulture ranges. So black mm -hmm. vultures and turkey vultures are two of the most common vultures in the United States. And uh, I really like vultures. I think they're pretty, honestly, pretty cute. And they provide a very helpful service of getting rid of all the dead animals that are all around. Right. Uh, so I, I actually put in my notes that I heart vultures. <laughs> <laughs> With a big uh, heart. <laughs> yeah. When I, uh, when I worked in Ohio at the Outdoor Education Center, Mm -hmm. uh, we also it was also a raptor rehabilitation center and we had to as part of our job that had totally illegal working conditions uh, both educate children and take care of a particular raptor cage mm -hmm. and mine was the vultures and apparently it was the one that nobody really liked because you had to feed them the leftovers from the other animals mm -hmm. but I didn't mind it at all because they were like big they weren't that friendly, but they were like big chickens. They uh, they didn't dive bomb you like the kestrels did, and they mm -hmm. weren't cranky or anything, and they don't actually make much in the way of sound. So they're just really, really neat animals. I like them a lot. Uh, I think uh, they're cool, too. Mm -hmm. There are some vultures that, um, on the walk that we take pretty frequently with the dog um, behind the shopping center because there's a trail that goes past it. And she really likes them, too. She has a lot of good things to say about how stinky, how vultures <laughs> eat stinky things. 
<laughs> that would be a cute little story to make up of the friendship of a, a dog that loves smelly stuff and a vulture. <laughs> wait, wait, vulture, let me roll on it real quick and then yeah. <laughs> and then you can eat it. You smell so good, friend. <laughs> <laughs> so once if the roadkill is not hauled to the side of the road and uh, left to decompose, then it's collected. And mm -hmm. what happens to the collected roadkill would be the next question. Uh, they may just be sent to a landfill. And depending if it's sort of a low volume, uh, because a rotting carcass is kind of a messy thing. Uh, so if it's a whole bunch of roadkill, uh, there will often be composted under wood chips. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a more practical decomposition, sort of encouraging the decomposition process without taking up landfill space. And then uh, this was surprising to me, but it's not hugely uncommon for roadkill that's in an okay condition to be taken to a rendering plant and either made into gelatin or rescued carnivore feed. Inter uh, like rescued carnivore, like like tigers or I think so I think anything that's a meat eater that's a rescue animal uh I couldn't get a lot of information about that you know I guess supply chain management uh -huh. but it was uh it was interesting to read so it's entirely possible that if you eat gelatin I guess you have eaten roadkill hmm <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually a pretty good segue into eating roadkill because on top of people being hired to collect it or people being hired to move it to the side of the road so it doesn't impede traffic, there are people that are happy to eat roadkill, which is fine. Uh, you know, you do you. I don't, I don't want to eat roadkill, but I don't want to eat an animal where I don't know how it died and how long it's been anywhere. So that's just my right. personal right. preference. However, you can't just go out and yank a deer. Off. Well, you can, but you shouldn't go yank a deer off the road. Uh, you may actually need a permit. Uh, it's worth checking with your local Fish and Wildlife Office. And uh, it, it can actually, there are laws on the books in a lot of states uh, about who owns roadkill. Uh, okay. In Alaska, they own the roadkill. Alaska itself as a state entity owns all roadkill. Uh, and then in Texas and California, possessing roadkill is entirely illegal. Uh, in Wisconsin, it's very legal to possess roadkill. Uh, so it's it's state by state. Uh, I couldn't find explicit information about North, North Carolina, which is where Sarah and I live, but I uh, didn't look that hard. It's more the point of you can take, you know, meat off the road, but it's a good idea to have the state uh, tell you you're allowed to. So and then do you think that's, sorry, do you think oh, that's ahead. because they don't want people to be out there um, just running deer down with like their, with their giant hummers? So the people is, aren't like hunting with their cars, basically. That is exactly why. That is exactly okay. why. Uh, that's, that would be considered poaching and, uh, I wrote, intentional killing of animals with your car is not considered a legal hunting method most places. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a great way to damage the hell out of your car. 
Yeah. Uh, Sarah and I are both originally from the Midwest, and I don't know how it is in Illinois, but in Michigan, the the deer collisions can be devastating for vehicles, yeah. obviously for the deer, and then, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to be killed, which is horrible. Right. They they actually cull deer populations in the Midwest because the white-tailed deer are so dangerous to motorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then you brought up sort of poaching. Well, I, I use the word poaching, but intentional killing. Uh, typically, if an animal has other valuable body parts, like a bear, a bighorn sheep, things like that, it will be excluded from animals it's considered legal to harvest as roadkill. Mm-hmm. So they want to make sure that even if someone is going through the proper channels of getting a permit to do this, they aren't uh, doing it for anything other than meat and, you know, as a sort of individual cleanup service. Uh, and then I found a statistic here that I think someone just did some creative math, but based on the <laughs> average meat of a deer and number of deer that are hit a year, which I think is, I think I lost that statistic, but it's an enormous number of deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a potential for maybe 20 million pounds of meat, which is a lot of meat wow I, yeah i uh i think a lot of people would have a serious problem with consuming roadkill which is fair yeah uh but that meat could feed animals easily you know pet food often has livestock in it and you could replace the livestock with deer hit by cars and then my last little point is what do you do if you hit an animal uh, it's not illegal to hit an animal accidentally with your car. Uh, and it's a very good idea to report it if you can. Uh, mm-hmm. Non-emergency numbers are a good way to do this. It can be helpful to ensure cleanup is quicker. Uh, you can, if you want to make an insurance claim, you can get information, you know, if, if you want to make get a police statement or something like that about what happened to your car, then you have witnesses, etc. cetera. Uh, I know a lot of people would be uncomfortable reporting that they killed an animal with their car, but uh, it's the type of thing where I get the feeling that a lot of law enforcement has bigger problems than whether or not somebody intentionally hit one deer one time with right. their car and then reported it. But that's just my current opinion. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a fast fact. Right. Uh, so that's what I have about where roadkill goes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, did you guys read the book Possum Living? I feel like I passed it off to you. I think, so Nick had a copy. Yeah. I don't know where it is, but he's read it and I've read parts of it. So her big thing was like, basically living off the land and mm-hmm. like living basically for he, she was like an early freegan as far as I can as far as I understand it like they kept chickens in their crawl space and all this other stuff mm-hmm. and um she talked a lot about picking up roadkill and using it and then there's all those roadkill cafe books too right right is that actually like it, they, I don't know anything about them but is it actually like recipes for roadkill or I is think- it fake I think some of it is, but I uh, think much like there's a roadkill festival in West Virginia, believe it or not. 
And really? a, yeah, and a lot of it is recipes that could be used or had been used in the past for roadkill, right. uh, but they often serve it with, say, chicken or legal, you know, hunted venison instead of car hit venison, uh, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but I do know that there are groups of people that like to eat roadkill and. Really, it's the type of thing where there's nothing wrong with it if you're comfortable with it. You need to be careful and make sure you cook things to the proper temperature. You know, a medium rare roadkill burger is probably not the best idea. Yeah. I mean, it's really not the best idea anywhere based on how meat is processed, but it sure is delicious. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, um, it's something people genuinely do. And in, in, I wonder if there could be something like a process or even something like, uh, like, you know how certain apps people can report traffic slowdowns and, uh, you know, speed traps and stuff. Yeah. I wonder if there could be a, that level of connectivity of reporting roadkill and then people coming and picking it up if they want it. Oh, so like crowdsourcing cleanup. Yeah. And then vultures evolve and they get the app and then they're like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then they write a better app. Yeah, exactly. Because they're really the best at it. I agree. Oh, nature. Yeah. So good at the job. It is. <laughs> so what, where... are you, what are you telling us about where something goes today, so, Sarah? Do you want to hear about where unclaimed dead bodies go? Yes, I really do. I'm really curious. <laughs> okay. So, as you know, because I've probably told you, I watch way too much NCIS. And this is probably something I shouldn't admit. But anyway, so in these episodes, sometimes there's these people and they're like, fingerprints are burned off and like, they can't identify them because they used to be like CIA spooks or whatever. And so there's no dental records. I'm like, well, what happens to those people if they're unidentified? And it turns out that's not very common for people to be um, unidentified because their fingerprints are burned off, as as you may know. Well, I didn't know that. I, well, I know it now. Uh, <laughs> that's good because that sounds horrible. Yeah, it turns out that's pretty much fiction for TV. But anyway... <laughs> There are unclaimed dead bodies. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, what what classifies an un, unclaimed dead body? And um, I really have to give a shout out to the North Carolina Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. I talked to um, someone there um, and he was he and I had just a really interesting, lovely conversation. And then I forgot to ask him if I could use his name. So um, I'm going to send him a thank you card, but I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to get him in trouble or anything if he mm-hmm. didn't want to talk like on the record or whatever but he was really really cool and really informative if I think he just wanted an audience for this honestly it's probably not something many people ask about yeah well or are willing to talk about at like a cocktail party or whatever exactly I would but, but that's me yeah I know <laughs> but that's us <laughs> yeah <laughs> So um, what is an unclaimed dead body? And unclaimed dead bodies, um, they, they can either be unidentified because, you know, maybe they ne- have never gone to the dentist or there's no fingerprints because 
you know, they've never been fingerprinted or whatever, and there's no one around to really claim their bodies. The person is indigent, and I had no idea what the word indigent meant. I had to look it up. It's, it turns out it's just a fancy word for poor and needy. Mm-hmm. Um, they know who the person is, and they're unable to be found, or the family has abandoned the body for whatever reason. So um, the guy at um, the medical examiner's office uh, pretty much told me that abandonment is now more common than ever. Um, wow. He says, yeah, he says that they will contact the the families because um, they know who the person is and all this stuff. But the the family actually um, can't pay the funeral costs or wants nothing to do with these people. So abandonment is the most common now for unclaimed dead bodies. Interesting. Um, so you can just say, no, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to go pick up Uncle Ted. I didn't like him. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Um, or they just can't pay the funeral costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I guess funeral costs. Um, the North Carolina actually cremates the bodies. We don't have any potters fields or anything mm-hmm. here. Um, and they cremate the bodies. And um, the clerk of the court will actually seize the assets of the deceased to pay whatever crematory costs they can. Um, and so that the taxpayers don't have to pick up too much of the tab but unfortunately, a lot of these people just don't have anything, so the tax picker payers pick up the tab. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do have your, if you do abandon your loved one and say, you know, I can't pay for them, um, this you actually can't get their ashes because, as as he said, um, we would be putting the funeral industry out of business if we just, you know, did all of it for them and nobody had to pay anything and then handed them the ashes. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, just from a fiscal point of view. Well, and there's also that um, it, it, it's treated differently if you're handing the ashes over, um, you know. Mm-hmm. So the family has 10 days to claim the body from the date of death onward. And the, the medical examiner um, personnel that I talked to says that they – they can and do work with people, which was nice to hear. Um, he said they will actually keep a body um, until the family can come up with the money for the cremation um, and then um, go on from there, which was really nice to hear. They're not just like hard and fast. You have 10 days to claim grandma and then it's over and we're just going to put her in a giant urn with all these other people. That's not what they want to do. So they will work with people. That's great. Yeah, yeah, and which was, it was nice to hear. It's not some crazy, you know, government, like, we're getting rid of grandma kind of thing. Yeah, so. rubber stamp, out the door, bye. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the state has a contract with a local crematorium, which which I found was interesting. And that's where all the unclaimed dead bodies go. Um, I did ask him about um, body farms or um, medical donation. And it was interesting. He actually told me that um, that's actually not common anymore. They do donate dead bodies when they can, mm-hmm. but medical schools have gotten really picky. So apparently so many people actually leave their bodies to science now that they will pick those people over, you know, the people that the social services that they they've been um, unclaimed or abandoned before 
they will pick, you know, those people. So the commission of anatomy is actually um, the, the commission that is in charge of this. And they are looking for certain diseases, certain ages, certain mm-hmm. weight and height limits, um, because they want a broad range of people for their medical students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that the NC medical examiner that I talked to, he said that um, often their bodies don't go to the medical school because um, they have been autopsied and, and, you know, of course their organs are taken out when you're autopsies and stuff. So that's mm-hmm. not something that um, the school wants because they're basically already picked apart. But the commission of an anatomy here actually donates the bodies to um, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Duke, East Carolina university and wake forest, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some where you're, where the bodies go. Um, that was interesting. interesting. Yeah. It's interesting um, to have the opposite problem of the beginning of medical schools where they had, they had to like snatch bodies from cemeteries. And now they're like, well, we, we've got plenty. Maybe we might use your body. We'll see. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That, that used to be how it had to go when you wanted to learn anatomy as you basically had to be a grave robber. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was illegal, I believe, from on religious grounds. I think so. And I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah it, well, and it's, I don't know if Catholicism still strongly holds this thought, but that you show up to the pearly gates, you know, pearly gates in whatever condition you died in, I guess, or your body is currently in. So if you're not buried whole, uh, you're just going to show up as parts or whatever, Mm -hmm. or, or Mm -hmm. ashes, I guess. I don't know. I, I, that is a throwback to my younger days. (laughs) Yeah. I, I have no idea. I, I, if there's a heaven, I want to go to dog heaven. But anyway, (laughs) that would be pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) so um when i talked to the medical examiner um about how families pay um because he was like uh, he was totally understandable understanding about people not being able to pay because a lot of the people that they get um in the medical examiner's office you know are homicides or a lot of them a lot of them are um, overdoses or poisonings from like fentanyl or stuff um yeah so he was he was kind of saying that um it's understandable the the clerk of the court will step in um seize assets sell off stuff and he, he had this really funny quote. He said, the funeral costs get paid before anything else. So I thought that was funny. That the under Wasn't there an old saying that the undertaker always gets paid? Yeah. That kind, of re- that kind of reminded me of that. It was like the old West saying the undertaker always gets paid. <laughs> <laughs> so this made me delve into potter's fields. And I didn't know how common they are they're actually not that common anymore most counties cremate the unclaimed unidentified bodies Mm -hmm. 
But there is a huge um, potter's field called City Cemetery um, in New York off of Hart Island um, in the Long Island Sound. And it is an enormous potter's field. Um, and they still bury people there. They, wow. it, it's only about 1,500 people a year now, but apparently there's 1 million people still buried there. Um, yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. And there... And so if you believe that your loved ones um, or your ancestors might be in this potter's field, um, you can go to the New York medical examiner um, and, and kind of claim the body and, and they will actually like help you find it. It's, it is kind of, it's not a mass grave in the way that you would think of a mass grave, you know, like in a horrible movie or something, they mm -hmm. are actually separated, um, uh, but there is like, you know, like 10 to 50 people in the grave, but they're separated so that they could exhume them if, if you wanted, I guess. Right. Um, it makes sense, especially because you may save, you may want to do one funeral a week or something. And so you got everybody that mm -hmm. you've accumulated for a week. Right. Right. So um, I found that that such a problem was really interesting. The guy that I talked to, he'd been doing this for 20 plus years. And he said that when he first started as a medical examiner, um, he actually only saw like an unclaimed abandoned dead body once every six months. Like it really wasn't that common. He says now it happens all the time. Wow. And I kind of, I know, and I asked him, you know, you know, what kind of, what is it he think is the, the, the reason for that? And he kind of waxed philosophical on me, which I thought was really cool. I always love it when people like let me in just a little bit. And, and he was like, he thinks it's really because of the proximity of families. Um, communities aren't really as close and the attitude towards death has really changed. Um, huh. I, I thought that was cool, too. Like, it was interesting to talk about. I remember when I was um, in college and I took this class, the so Sociology of Death and Dying. Yes, I did take a class called the Sociology of Death and Dying. Oh, it sounds great. I would yeah. love that class. Yeah, it was a good class. And um, we talked about um, how how cemeteries, graveyards, used to be like a huge draw for people. Like it was a park and you would go to this park and you would visit your loved ones and you would have picnics at the cemetery. Mm -hmm. and, and now if people did that, they, you know, it'd be, you know, goth people or whatever. <laughs> or <laughs> me. Come. I have strongly considered, uh, I don't know that I'd have a picnic, but I would, I definitely want to take a, a walk or two in that, uh, that cemetery downtown that's got the newer half and the yeah. older half. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like cemeteries. <laughs> I do too. And they're meant to be beautiful. Like the old ones, um, they are meant to be beautiful. They are meant to be walked through. Mm -hmm. They're meant to be enjoyed. Um, they're meant to, the, the, the stones are gorgeous, you know, mm -hmm. the old mausoleum stuff. And it's just, people don't really enjoy them anymore. And he, he, he kind of talked about that and that reminded me of the class that I took, um, because as part of our um, project, we had to go out and um, do statistical data on on when people died and, and the cluster of people dying and stuff. And it was interesting that he mentioned that 
Um, he also, the, the attitude towards death a little bit is that a lot of people deny it now too. Mm -hmm. That was my general, that's not what he said, but that's my general understanding of what he was saying was that we kind of deny it as a part of life and it's, it's easy to push it away. And so if you, your uncle Ted, you're the only person your uncle had Ted had, and you don't really have the money and you don't really want to come up with the money, it's easy to push it away and just be like, you know what? I don't want to deal with Uncle Ted. He's just going to be burned, whatever. Yeah, and I want to think of Uncle Ted alive like I right. remember him. Right. E even if in my narrative I didn't like Uncle Ted, I want to remember not liking him alive. <laughs> <laughs> I want to remember how much I didn't like him. <laughs> yes. <sighs> That's really interesting. I uh, I wonder how much of that might change in the future with an increased interest in genealogy and yeah. uh, increased interest in genetic genealogy, too. Because mm -hmm. uh, I did a project, actually, when I was studying abroad in Ireland, and it was a really weird project. I was tasked with inventorying and mapping and doing a history of the local cemetery, mm -hmm. uh, which was really neat. It was interesting to see, you know, why people died. And uh, in Ireland, they actually stack people, uh, family members, because it's a small island and they know they don't have a lot of space. So they actually stack people in graves and they'll add a new person on when they die. And uh, I couldn't see how this was community engagement because that was the project was community engagement. And I was like, well, I'm just by myself in a graveyard with some crows. And uh, <laughs> it, it turns out when I you know, completed the project and presented it to the community, they were so excited and everybody started looking through it, looking for their relatives and stuff. So I wonder if it's a, maybe even a regional thing of like, I know in, Mormonism, knowing who you're related to is really important. So I wonder if in Utah, there's been that uptick that's been here or, you know, what the difference is in attitudes toward death in different areas based Absolutely. on uh, enjoyment of cemeteries, if there's anywhere that they actually still treat cemeteries as parks. It's really, it's a lot to think about. It's interesting. That is interesting. And, and, and I hadn't even really thought about it. Like, um, different religious contacts, um, as like the United States, um, like Mormons. I had, I didn't really even think about that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's as many abandoned dead bodies and I wonder if maybe it's higher in the places where the opioid epidemic is really oh, bad. Geez, probably. Yeah. Especially because, you know, in the throes of addiction and particularly, I think opioids, I think they're particularly pernicious, but uh, you end up separated from your support system. That's a big that's a big component of addiction, and that's a big right. component of recovery is generating a support system again of other people. So mm -hmm. I could see that being absolutely the case. Yeah. So it turns out it's not so much the unidentified bodies are old CIA operatives. <laughs> it's more that they're just regular people who. Um, they're either abandoned or un unidentified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so, the so if what? You, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
what happens with the cremains? So they get put in sort of a communal urn? Yes. Okay. And where is, is that kept in the medical examiner's office? You know, I didn't ask, but I'm assuming that the crematorium keeps it, honestly. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense than taking the body there and then taking the box of cremains back to be put in an urn in a medical facility. Especially right. because I think cremains can be pretty dusty, so that would be a poor choice for a medical facility. <laughs> <laughs> Big boxes of dust. I also like the word cremains. Yeah, I don't know where in the recesses of my brain I pulled that one out, but I'm pretty sure it is a word. <laughs> I like the word. Yeah. Well, cool, Sarah. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, it was very interesting. And again, I have to just, I really love the guy that I talked to. He was really cool. Um, I'm going to send him a thank you card. I sat up last night. Seriously, I sat up last night like, do you think he likes cookies? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was seriously like, I'll send cookies to the guy at um, the medical examiner's office. <laughs> It might be in poor taste, but I, I immediately thought gingerbread men. Uh, <laughs> he was pretty cool. He'd probably like it. He probably would. Uh, <laughs> um, I didn't know a lot of that. So that's, I'm really excited to know it now. <laughs> yeah. And I sent you that, that tweet not too long ago. Um, yeah. The screen cap of the tweet, like, it turns out to save money, you could have the state bury you. Actually, don't do that to people. You know, don't don't do that. If it, <laughs> don't be buried um, if you, by the state if you don't have to. It, yeah. It's just better for everyone. It's a lot There's of extra lot work of, for people. Yeah, it's a lot of bureaucratic work for the clerk of the court, the the um, Department of Social Services, and yeah. So have your will updated. That's my that's seriously. My <laughs> Everybody should have a will. A living yeah. will is not a bad idea either. That's all your medical directives of what you want. Uh, right. Yeah. Will dying without a will is a thing a lot of people do. I want to interview my mom about that. Actually, my mom does estate stuff, and she's retiring mm -hmm. in like two weeks, so she'll have time on her hands. But about what happens when somebody dies without a will? Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> It's the moral of the story. <laughs> Don't do it. It gets very complicated from what um, the NC medical examiner guy was telling me. Um, it's just complicated because the clerk of the court has to step in. And like he said, the undertaker gets paid first. That's not exactly what he said, but the yeah. funeral costs get paid first. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, it's just, it sounds like it's kind of a mess. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, from what my mom has mentioned about people who have died without wills it's uh and, and but she mostly deals with people whose families very much want to take claim of their bodies because they very much want to take claim of their assets as well but uh, so it's slightly different but yes legal zoom is where i did my and nick's wills it's pretty easy mm -hmm. we're not sponsored by legal zoom <laughs> by the way we're welcome we're welcoming sponsors of LegalZoom wants to be part of Right. This. Hey, LegalZoom. <laughs> <laughs> we just mentioned you for free. The next time won't be. 
And so uh, one last thing I wanted to do with this podcast, I think every episode is a little reuse corner because mm-hmm. both Sarah and I have had lots of discussions about how there's just too much stuff in this world. Mm-hmm. And reduction is the best way to deal with stuff, but reuse is the second best way. And uh, Sarah has a pretty cool reuse project that she does from time to time and has gifted us as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and talk about it. So um, I have, I'm a, I'm a big crocheter. I love to crochet. Um, I learned to crochet when I was a, a kid and uh, apparently I learned to crochet backwards is what people tell me, but this is just how my grandma taught me. So I'll leave with that. But anyway, Not that anybody is going to be watching me crochet. Um, So there's this really cool project that you take plastic bags and uh, I will link a, um, a, a link to how to, how to actually make plastic yarn um, Mm -hmm. in the notes, but it's basically all those plastic bags that you get from the grocery store. You take a big pile of them and you fold them kind of accordion fold them. And then you cut them into strips, and this leaves you with loops. And the loops you you link together, mm-hmm. um, and you link together, link together, link together until you have a ball of plastic yarn. And you're going to need a pretty large hook for this. Um, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what size yet, but it'll be all in the in the notes. Mm-hmm. And you can make you can make bags. It's kind of meta to make a plastic bag or basket for shopping out of plastic bags and I've made quite a few of them Um, I've gifted them to friends I made baskets for them and uh, people always always think it's really cool to get a plastic bag crocheted out of plastic and they're actually really really sturdy too they're incredibly sturdy Mm -hmm. we use them for gardening tools which can Mm -hmm. be pretty sharp yeah. We've never had an issue with it even snagging or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also really easy to clean. Yes. Uh, because it's you plastic. can. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're really fun. And it's nice because you end up with one grocery trip, you end up with 45 bags sometimes, depending mm-hmm. on how much you're buying. And then at least you can condense it down into one bag. Right. And I never remember to bring my my reusable bags. Like, I maybe have one in my car, and that doesn't cut it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm horrible about it, too. I should get better. We can make that a reuse resolution. There you go. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. Uh, Absolutely. I look forward to recording our next episode. And uh, thank you for anyone listening to Where Does It Go? Awesome. Thank you. Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go?